But this morning, um, Pastor Brock let me know kind of near the beginning of the year that I was going to have this opportunity to, to speak to you this morning. And as I started to prepare for that, I had prayed and thought about what is, what is it, God, that you want me to say this morning uh, that, that would be a word for the church? Pastor Brock has given each uh, ministry leader within our church an opportunity to share and highlight their respective ministries and talk about what they're doing in their ministry and how God is shaping what they're doing. And today I want to do that for you. I want to give you a glimpse into kind of what we're trying to do in Refuge to help students come to know Jesus. But even greater than that, I think I have a word for you to help us really think about our lives, how we're living, uh, what we're doing here in ministry, and, and how, what, what can we do as PFN to help reach more people. I don't think that this is just an update or an insight into Refuge. I think this morning is actually a word from God for our entire church, for our entire body. I've been reading a, a lot of books. I read a lot of books. Well, actually, I don't read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of books. Uh, I'm an auditory learner, and so I love audiobooks. And I listen to a lot of books uh, all the time, especially in the car. I love to listen and learn. That's one of the, the things that God's instilled in me is this desire to learn. And one of the books that's really transformed me and challenged me recently is a book called Meet Generation Z. Meet Generation Z is a book that is basically talking about where our culture is today and what are the distinctives of this upcoming generation. That would be Generation Z. We've moved on from the millennials. I'm a millennial. We've moved on from them. We're old news. It's now Generation Z. Generation Z is our newest generation. And so today, some of the information that I'm going to share with you and I'll talk to you about comes directly from the influence and the insight that that book has given me and the challenge it's placed on my life. And so this morning, before we jump in, I'd love to pray for us and kind of get, us, get our hearts right, and then I want to really dive into what does God have to say to us today uh, about reaching the lost, reaching our culture, and, and really investing in this next generation. Would you pray with me real quick? God, we love you and we gather here to hear you from you. God, I pray that your spirit is, is just uh, so fresh and so... Uh, just strong in this place. God, I pray that these words, that this message is from your heart directly and that your words uh, come out and are heard. Help us to take what you have to say to us this morning and to, to really apply it and put it into action. God, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so there's something uh, that is really happening in our culture right now that you should be aware of. And the first thing that uh, I think I really pulled from this book, Generation Z, is something called The Rise of the Nuns. And this is the N-O-N-E-S, nuns, not the N-U-N-S, like sister nuns, you know? This is, the, this is the nuns. There is something going on in our culture called The Rise of the Nuns. And the nuns are a group of uh, individuals who, when they are asked or surveyed about their religious affiliation, they respond with none. What are you, you know, where do you go to church or what denomination are you associated with? Are you Christian, Buddhist, what are you? They were, their answer is none. Our culture in America is becoming more and more secular. That's not news to anyone. Uh, but with that secularization, uh, the church is kind of losing its dominant 
shaper of culture. It's losing its influence. It's losing its ability to kind of really be the prominent shaper. And the things that are really shaping culture right now are music and pop stars and celebrities, uh, more so than ever before. But not only this, uh, Christianity uh, is starting to lose its place as the dominant worldview. And so that shapes where we're headed with how we have to do church. Uh, The nuns, uh, a true mark of a nun is one who does not just reject God, but really rejects any form of specific religion. When it comes to content, dogma, orthodoxy, anything spelling out or offering a system of beliefs, they have gone from, I believe, or maybe, to, who knows. That is the mark of a nun. Here are some uh, quick stats that I want you, they're on, your, they're on your outline, but there's some quick stats that I want you to look at really quick about the nuns. Number one, <clears throat> the nuns are the fastest growing religious group in the United States right now. They're increasing by uh, single, uh, multiple uh, percentage points every single year. Uh, last year they increased by 2%. Um, number two, the nuns are currently the largest religious group in the U.S., surpassing the Catholics last year. So right now, uh, they are the largest group in the United States. Number three, one in four adults currently claims to be a nun, and one in three adults under the age of 30 claim to be a nun. That is a huge proportion. The impact on the rise of the nuns is multiplied by the number of professing Christians shrinking. Right now, of the 85% of adults that were raised Christian, 25% of them are now a nun. So adults who were raised in the church, who were raised Christian, 25% of them are now a nun. To put this in perspective for you, former Christians now make up 19.2% of our population, and for every new convert to Christianity, there are four former Christians renouncing faith. That's where our culture is headed. They've also been finding that the younger the generation, the more post-Christian they are. Now, all this data uh, that I just shared with you is not just from one area or one group. It's not just from a religious uh, polling system or just a secular, secular uh, data collecting information. It's from the Pew Research Center. It's from Barna Research Group. It's from Gallup Polls. And they found that, this, that these demographics, that this information, that this data is widespread. It's not isolated to any race, gender, ethnicity, economic status. It just is across the board happening in America. Now, I want to let you know a little bit about Generation Z. A Generation Z is defined as anyone who was born between 1995 and 2010. Uh, I'm in constant contact with Generation Z right now. Generation Z now constitutes 25.9% of our U.S. population. They are the largest generation currently. By 2020, that's in two years, Generation Z will account for 40% of all consumers. They will not simply influence American culture as a generation, they will constitute American culture. The most distinctive characteristic of this new generation is that they are post-Christian. Now I want you to really hone in here. What does it mean that they are post-Christian? Let me explain that a little bit. Uh, First of all, it means that they're lost. They're not simply being shaped by a post-Christian culture and they're not simply being uh, secularized. They're, they're, many of them are being raised by parents that are not Christians and have grandparents that are really not Christian, which means that most of Generation Z right now has no Christian heritage or Christian memory at all. They are almost completely spiritually illiterate. 
They have very little knowledge of anything uh, spiritual. Also, they are leaderless. Little of any direction comes from their families and even less from their attempts to gain access from the internet. A lot of parenting now is, I don't really want to deal with you, so here's an iPad, and now you have access to a wealth of information, a lot of information that's probably more mature than you're really able to handle, but I don't really want to deal with you, so here's an iPad, get on here, and they get all this information, but they don't know what to do with it. And they look for answers and look for leaders online, and who do they go to? YouTube stars. They go to celebrities. Those are their role models. Right now... Um, 8% of Generation Z would cite a religious leader as their role model. 21.3% of the generation claims to be agnostic, and less than half attend a weekly religious uh, service of any kind. Now these numbers, uh, I don't want this to be a little seminar, and I don't want you just to think about data all the time, but I wanted to present this data to you because I think this data has something to say to us as Christians. I don't think it was any news to anyone in here that the, the culture is becoming more secular, but what, should, uh, cause, what this data should do is cause us to act. See, as Christians, if we really love the lost, if we really do uh, take Jesus' words to heart and when he says that we need to be a sent people, we need to people that go out and reach the lost, love people that don't know Jesus, that this data should cause us to really get ready for action. And not just get ready for action, but then take action in our culture. I know that uh, things are probably not going to turn around. I know that culture is probably not going to revert back and become, uh, you know, America is probably not going to become some, you know, godly Christian nation once again. But what our task is to do is to not just try to sh sh uh, shift a culture or a, a country, but it's to say, hey, we realize what's in front of us. We realize the statistics and, and where people are at, and we've got to really do something about it. Because if we don't, if we just kind of sit on our hands, what we're really saying is that we really just don't care. But there's people out there that we just don't really care about. And the only reason I can say that is because if we believe that the message of Jesus Christ, if we believe that, that making a decision for Jesus is really a matter of eternity, if it really means that you will spend an eternity in heaven or you will spend an eternity in hell, then having, reaching this next culture, reaching this next generation is super important if we actually believe that eternity hangs in the balance. Because if it doesn't matter, and this is all just kind of here, I just need some friends, we're kind of just, you know, we hang out, they got good coffee, you know, in the well, then, you know, it, then we can just kind of, you know, keep going and doing what we're doing. But... Christ called us to be a sent people. He didn't call us to sit on our hands, to kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, I didn't know what to do. That doesn't cut it. This idea, well, I, I don't really know how to, to relate to these people. That's, that's, not, that's not okay. That's not, Jesus doesn't say, you're not going to get to heaven. Jesus is going to be like, well, I realize that you really didn't know how to relate to people, so you get a pass. That's not how it works. And so I had this huge burden on my heart and it's not just because I'm a youth pastor and I work with Generation Z. I had this huge burden on my heart because I feel like God has called us to go and make disciples of all nations. That's what he did with the disciples. Which leads us right into uh, this morning's text. And this morning's text is from Acts chapter 15. Um, we're going to go through several verses in Acts, but the book of Acts tells a rather amazing story of, about a, 
uh, how a group of ordinary people, blue-collar workers, tax collectors, and a few women, basically started the largest religious movement in history. Their story is really quite remarkable. Never had a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. After Jesus had resurrected, he gathered his ragtag group of disciples together on the side of the mountain and said, okay, all right, boys, here's your job. Your job is to spread this message and to make disciples for me in every country in the world. And then he floats off into heaven. As you think about that, you've got to think, what were the disciples thinking? I'm sure that after Jesus left, one of them had to say, the whole world? Does this guy know how big the whole world is? Does he, does he really know how few we are and how big the world is? And he's asking us to spread this message to the whole world? He's crazy. Again, never had a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it starts with this. It says this, it says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So again, Acts was this book where we see this ragtag group of people get this assignment to go reach the lost, and they start to do this, and then there's, right here in 15, we see that there were some, there were some people that started to teach something additional to the gospel. They started to say, hey, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. See, a lot of first Christians were Jews, and they were raised in the Jewish culture. They were raised under the Old Testament law. They, had, they knew the rules. And so one of the uh, most important Jewish laws at the time was that every male had to be circumcised. And it was a God-given sign to separate the people of God from the world. Verse 2 says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem and see the apostles and the elders about this question. 6 through 10 says, The apostles and elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows all the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just, that he, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And now then, why do you try to test God by putting on their necks a yoke that, is neither, that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we were saved, just as they are. So what we see here in this, in this section of verses is that uh, there was this group of people teaching the, the newest Christians, the Gentiles, the ones who had no biblical knowledge, the ones who were not raised by the Old Testament law. Uh, they were telling him, hey, in order to be saved, you have to do some extra things, and one of those things is be circumcised. So it, that really made Paul and Barnabas mad, and it says they got into you know, a, 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 dis, a debate or a dispute, which means there was probably a lot of yelling. And uh, they, they got together and they said, hey, this, is, this doesn't work. And Peter comes in and says, hey, I was raised a Jew, and this was all these laws I, I struggled to, 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 to follow. I couldn't follow them all, and our ancestors, they couldn't follow all these rules either. So why are we trying to place on the necks of the Gentiles or the necks of these people who have no biblical knowledge, who have no understanding, why are we trying to place some extra things on them that burden them and, and, and hurt them? Because they can't, they can't live up to these laws just like we couldn't. See, the Jews that were here, uh, they knew how to do church. They knew the right answers. 
and they believed Jesus uh, had saved them. However, they started adding things to the gospel. They were placing burdensome requirements on these new believers that were in addition to the uh, believing in faith on Jesus. The Gentiles were pre-Christian, which is basically where our culture is at now. These people, we say they're post-Christian, but really they, both cultures had really no, uh, no knowledge of the gospel. They were a pagan society, and they had very little spiritual knowledge. In Acts 15, 13, it says this, when they finished, James spoke up. James, this is James, the brother of Jesus. And he said this, brothers, listen to me. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should make it not difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Again, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I would suggest this morning that we engrave that on the cornerstone of our church, but even deeper on the cornerstone of our hearts and our spirits. That we not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That we would not make it difficult for those who are lost to turn to God. I think that any obstacle that we can eliminate, we should. Even preferences for the things that I really like, the things that I'm comfortable with, the things that uh, I prefer, I think if those are, those are uh, burdensome, if those hinder the lost from coming to know, the, know Christ, I think we should remove those things. Uh, I've really been challenged in the way that I uh, speak on uh, Wednesdays and Sundays to my teens in this very area. Uh, I don't want to hinder any new students from coming to know Jesus. I encounter students every single week who have no knowledge of Jesus at all. They have uh, very few of them have any Christian heritage. They're being brought by friends, and they really have no idea what to expect. If you want to encounter some really raw, uh, you know, basically new students that have no idea who the gospel or what the gospel is or who Jesus is, man, refuge is a spot for you. These students come in, and one of the things that I, I really try to, I, I, I've been taking notice of is how do I talk to them? Um, when I preach, I try, I'm starting to try to do things that I never did before. Like instead of saying, well, you know, in Matthew, they don't know in Matthew. Who's Matthew? Did he write a book? Is he in the room? Is, is Matthew the pastor? See, I, I want to do things like, you know, in the, bio, the biography written by one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, he talks about Jesus, and in, and in the 15th chapter of his biography, in verse 2, Matthew says this about Jesus. See the difference? That's the difference, because I don't want to hinder those who don't know Jesus from coming to know Jesus because they don't know what's going on, because they're clueless to what's, what, what, what's going on. I think we in the church have become accustomed to how we do things. We know the order. We know what's, what to expect. But there's so many people that walk through our doors at PFN and walk into refuge and walk into kids' zones that have no knowledge of that. I want to remove anything that would hinder people from knowing uh, Jesus. A couple things. Uh, you know, sometimes I think we project this sanitized life, this life that looks perfect where we, you know, kind of all walk in and we've got big smiles on our face and we're carrying our big Bibles and, uh, you know, we, hi, brother, how are you today, you know? And uh, we all kind of look like we just, you know, stepped out of a J. Crew magazine. Um, 
let me help you out, a Bergner's magazine, okay? Um, yeah. Uh, but I want you to know that there's a lot of people that come in through our doors that don't, that don't have this sanitized life. They, they, they can look at us and say, I, I don't relate to these people. I don't understand because my life doesn't look like this. How are they doing it? I, I don't belong here. I know as a staff, we don't want to make it difficult for those being drawn to God, guests that are drawn to our church who have heard that God's at work here, but when they get here, the facilities are a mess, the parking's bad, kids' rooms are overcrowded, teens outnumber adults 10 to 1, all because we don't have enough volunteers. I know the one thing that we, we don't ask for volunteers because we want to help you, like, check off your good deed for the week. We don't want to make it difficult for those who are turning to God. When they come here, we ask for help. We ask for people to, to be invested in our church, not because we just want to you know, help you get your good deed. It's because we don't want to make it difficult for those who don't know Jesus to come to Jesus because of something that we could remove. We don't want to make it difficult for those turning to God because um, we mock or speak condescendingly about people outside because they don't act right or talk right. I think it's ridiculous for us as Christians to expect people with no knowledge of the gospel to act and talk in a manner that would align with the gospel. My dad used to always tell me, hey, Josh, um, <clears throat> I know you're having this, this issue with your buddy, but hey, man, he doesn't know Jesus. And why are you expecting someone who's a sinner who doesn't know Christ to act any different than like a sinner would? It's insane. It's insane that you would expect him to do that. It's, you're placing burdens on him, son. My dad would tell me that all the time. Man, you do, why are you doing that to Raymond, man? You love Raymond. Why are you doing that? Hey, you don't have to act like him. You don't have to talk like him. But don't place requirements on him that he's not ready for. Don't do that to him. You're hindering him. I know that as a church, we don't want to make it difficult for African Americans or people of other races to turn to God because we have no multicultural representation in our leadership. And that being a Christian means capitulating to white culture. Well, one, one of the reasons we hired Irene, we love her, but I'm gl really glad that we've got some, some uh, other races and other ethnicities represented in our leadership. It matters to God. Diversity is a big deal to Jesus. That's why, he, I mean, he, he brought in the Gentiles. He said, hey, it's a big deal. Uh, you know, even trivial things, I don't want to make it difficult for Democrats or Republicans to come to God because we add secondary political opinions into the gospel. I want to do whatever it takes to remove barriers from our church to help reach the lost. And I want you to know that as your youth pastor, I'm working diligently to try to remove any barrier that would prevent teens from coming to know the love of Jesus. In order to do that, I've had to put my personal preferences behind me and remember what it was like before I knew Jesus. One of the things that this book uh, talked to me about that I, I was really uh, influenced and affected by was something called the curse of knowledge. See, once you know something, you can't unknow it. And so one of the things as Christians is we, we, we know the gospel, we know the Bible, we know how we should act, we know how, should we, how we should talk, and then we kind of forget what it was like to not be like that. We forget what it was like to be lost, to have the, the huge struggles, to deal with those things, and our curse of knowledge puts hindrances in people's place. So I've got to go back all the time and remember what was it like. But not only that, I want to, I, I, I'm working hard to ask good questions to new students and to students who are not yet Christians about how their experience is and what things need better explaining and what things we can add or we could remove to, to refuge to try to help remove barriers. Because I want to reach lost students.
for Christ. It's easy for us to fall into a level of comfort in the church. It's easy for me to put my comforts and my desires and my preferences first. It takes intentionality to combat these things. Because I think as a church culture, one of the things in the West that we've done as the American church is we have really made church about me. That coming to church is about what I want, what I need, where I'm at. I've been a Christian for 45 years, but I'm still looking for me. Well, I didn't really like that song. Well, you know, I don't really like the way they do that. Well, that, that message is a little bit beneath me, a little shallow. I want something that feeds me because I only eat once a week. So when I show up, I really want to eat good. Right? <laughs> because the rest of the week, I'm starving. Yep. And so we, we, we've, we've made church so much about us and our preferences and what we like, and, and we, don't, we don't even think about anyone else. We don't think about how does, how is this, what is, what does this song or this message say to someone who's never known Jesus before? Do you know someone who doesn't know Christ? Are you, are you investing in them? Are you, do you, do you have any idea what it would be like? Do you bring them to church? Do you ask them, like, how was that? What was your thoughts? What was your experience? What did you not understand? See, those are the things, those are the questions that we've got to be asking ourselves and not just showing up on Sunday morning and hoping that we can get our week or our month fill if we only come once a month. We've got to, we've got to do, really do what it takes to, uh, to, to remove barriers. One of the things that uh, they talk about also is this missionary idea. See, if I was asked to be a missionary in Africa, what are some of the things that I would do? Well, first of all, I don't know their language. I don't dress like them. I don't know their culture. I don't know their history. I don't know who's famous. I don't know anything about, really, Africa. So if I was asked to be a missionary in Africa, I would do what it takes to relate to them, right? I would, I would learn how they talk. I would learn how they dress. I would, I would try to set up a worship service or a church service that would cater to how they live, their culture, their lifestyle. But sometimes in uh, the Western church, we have kind of pulled away from that idea. We, we, don't, we don't see America as a culture in which we're trying to reach. We see American culture as something that we're trying to avoid. Let's disengage from the culture. Let's disengage from the lost people. We don't, we don't want to, you know, I don't really want my kids and fr friends with non-Christians because then they might pick up some bad habits that I don't really want them to have. You know, I don't, I don't really want all this stuff because it's, it's, it's bad. So what do I do? I, I listen to Christian music and I watch Christian TV shows and I listen to Christian radio and I, and I, uh, I wear Christian t-shirts and I uh, have Christian underwear and just want to make sure that I'm really Christian, you know? And so uh, I, I know that some of you uh, will see me at times walking around in a hat or in ripped jeans and a big scoop shirt. But see, I, I want you to know I'm a missionary to, to my people. So I'm going to dress like them, and I'm going to talk like them, and I'm going to be with them because they matter to me. I know that you may not like my ripped jeans. I don't care. <laughs> I love lost people. And we have, we have students that are coming to know Jesus 
through NYC, through team camp, through missions trip, through Wednesday nights, through Sunday nights, and I want to remove any barrier that I can that hinders them or prevents them from coming to know the love of Jesus because this is about heaven and hell to me. I don't know where you're at, y'all, but to me, this is a big deal. And I want these students, I want our, you know, there's way too many people in Pekin that don't know Jesus. We got a good crowd in here, but man, we need a lot more people. There's, if there's room between you and the, in the pews, that means there's somebody that's out there that should be in here. And we've got to do more to reach them. I'm telling you, I've got a school of 3,000 people right down the road, 3,000 students that, you know, I, I got 75 to 100, but I, you, pff, I need a lot more. There's a lot of students who do not know Jesus that I've got to reach. Anley Stanley talks about uh, several different drifts, uh, and, and he says that this text warns us about that we face. Every church faces this. Every Christian faces this drift. And the first one is this, the drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. Every church tends to do this. When PFN first started with the first charter members, there was 10 or 15 But they had a deep, deep passion for reaching lost people, for bringing outsiders in. And you know why? Because if they didn't, the next week, the next month, they'd show up with the same 10 people in church. And so they had to reach out. They had to go out. They had to do something. But what happens is just, you know, we get bigger. We get more established. We get comfortable. And we've got needs, so we start thinking about ourselves. We, 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 start, we stop thinking about the outsider, and we just start thinking about us on the inside. Um, pastor J.D. Greer, a pastor in North Carolina, said this. This is his quote. He said this. <clears throat> it's sad to go into churches stuck in old traditions, groups of people who have been in the same seats since the Revolutionary War. If you're in your 40s, you're in the youth group. He says, I walk in, and I think, Wow. If the 1940s ever come back into style, these people are going to be ready. But they won't change. Even though they can see that they are not reaching the next generation. And I think it's sad because they love their traditions more than they love their grandchildren. That affected me. And I'm not saying... um, that that's where we're at. But I'm telling you that there's, there's a tension. There's a tension that we experience when it comes to reaching younger people, when it comes to reaching a younger generation. Uh, real quick, um, if you are between the ages of 20 and 29, would you stand up? If you're a regular member, you're a regular member of, of PFN, and you're in the, between the ages of 20 and 29, would you stand up? Let me tell you, folks, there's a lot more 20 to 29-year-olds in Pekin. A lot more. And we've got to do a better job of reaching this next generation. We've got to do a better job of reaching the people, not just in the 20 to 29 group, but I'm talking about just there's a lot of people that don't know Jesus in Pekin, in Tremont, in East Peoria, Creve Corps, all around us that we can reach. How are we removing Barriers. Number two, adrift from grace to law. 
See, the ones in, the Acts, uh, in Acts 15, the ones that are calling out for circumcision were saved Christians. They knew Jesus. They believed Jesus. And they, they put faith in Christ. But after that, they started to drift back towards a rules-based relationship with God. That always happens. We're, constantly, or we're consistently tempted to drift from grace back to law. One of the church... One of the great church leaders, Martin Luther, said that our hearts are hardwired for law. Now, our list is different. Circumcision is probably not on the top priority list for us as Christians currently. Um, but we have our own lists. We have our own list of things that we say, if you do these things, that will make you right with God or show that you're a good Christian. You know, the, you know, don't cuss, drink, or chew, or hang out with girls who do. Those are the kind of rules that I'm talking about. These are the kind of barriers that we place. Not bad things. Let me, I want to make this clear. These are not bad things. Most of them are good things. They're, they're things that we, I, we would say are good, but we make them the most important, or we, we use those things to evaluate one another. Things like, are you involved in ministry? Do you have a quiet time? You know, are you a perfect family? Have you ever, you know, given money to the church? Things like that. Not not bad things, things that are important, devotions, things like that. But we, 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 we move from this, these are good things you should be doing to, if you're not doing these things, I'm, I'm evaluating your spiritual life and judging you and, and making you feel lesser. And I, I don't think that we should stop doing those things. I don't think, stop, well, I'm not going to do devotions because I don't want to judge somebody else for not doing them. Uh, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is, man, we've got to have a lot more grace and we've got to really help Help someone. If you see someone who is struggling, why don't you walk aside, alongside them and say, let's do this thing together instead of saying, well, they're not very good Christian because I heard them, you know, say a four-letter word the other day. Um, we're not to judge people's hearts. And number three, the drift from a focus on internal transformation to one on external conformity. The gospel's focus is transforming the heart. God judges the heart. Let me say that again. God judges the heart. God judges the heart. You don't know your neighbor's heart. You're not the judge. But what happens in our, in our church culture is that it becomes really easy to start conforming on the outside to what we think people want us to look like. I know I should act like this. You know, I know I should say this. Right? We're in Sunday school class, and the teacher starts describing this small, brown, really fast rodent that has a tail and likes to eat acorns. And they, she asks, what am I describing? And you raise your hand and you say, Jesus. No, it's a squirrel. It's not Jesus. But we're so, we're so, we're so concerned about external conformity that even when I describe a squirrel to you, you want to reply, Jesus. Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the cross. That it's brown, the cross is brown. You just describe something that's brown, it's got to be the cross. That's what happens. We, we want external conformity. Jesus said that the essence of the law was to love God and love others, and everything else was an outworking of that. Now the Bible helps us see what love looks like. Truth, purity, justice. But the core is a heart of love. And this is the heart that is produced by faith in Christ. In places that we lose the focus of the gospel and we replace inward transformation with 
an emphasis on outward conformity, um, we really lose the essence of the gospel in its entirety. But see, these are not just church warnings. These are church-goer warnings. It comes from, a, a, from our mindset. And I think what we've got to start asking ourselves is, when we're going to church, are we going to church exclusively for ourselves? Do I show up and exclusively, am I exclusively here for, for what I want? Am I constantly criticizing or critiquing the music or the message and whether I like it or whether it speaks to me? Is the atmosphere and the settings about what I prefer and how I like things to like, or is it about loving other people to Christ? And if things change, if we have a, a different setting or we have a different song or we have, do you have somebody that's in your life that doesn't know Jesus that is coming with you that you could actually bounce them? How did you like that? What did you think about that? Do you, you know, have you, what's your thoughts here? So my conclusion is this. Um, well, how does this look for us in refuge? We, we're trying to, to move, remove anything. Um, one of the biggest barriers that we're experiencing right now in refuge is, is just help. It's just adults that will invest in, leader, or invest in students. Uh, again, like I said, in generations, either lost in their leaderless. But right now, uh, we need adults that will come in into refuge and be a part of what we're doing there and be, be willing to consistently invest in our students. Uh, even greater than just adults, more specifically, would be males. I just need more uh, adult males to, to, to be a part of refuge. It's one of the biggest barriers that I'm experiencing right now uh, inside of our youth group is that not only are, is Generation Z leaderless, but man, they really, really, really lack male influence. Godly, healthy male influence. Uh, not only is it just a generation, it's a cultural thing, right? Um, and really what's portrayed right now, uh, the reason that we do, we just, uh, last month we did our manly man retreat, which is just our guys retreat, talking about what is godly masculinity, what does it mean to be a, a, a man after God's own heart, that kind of stuff. Because what right now, what culture is uh, really uh, providing as a, a, a form of masculinity is just really hyper-masculinity, macho, uh, completely emotionalist, completely insensitive, do whatever I want, sexually dominant, uh, macho, horrible, just masculinity. It's awful. And so one of the things that I need is just some partners to come alongside with me and say, hey, I'm willing to invest in students. Studies are showing right now for in order, in order for a teen to trans, transition from teen to adulthood and became, still maintain their faith to maintain being a strong Christian, they need four other adults outside of their youth pastor and their parents to invest in them in a spiritual way. If that's once a month mentoring, if that's once a month taking somebody out and just having, you know, conversations about life, how are you doing, how are you and your girlfriend, you know, are your boundaries still up, what's going on there, that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that teens need in order right now in our culture to transition from being a teen to adulthood and maintaining their faith. And for our church, I think it challenges us to go outside of our walls and have this mindset on eternal things, to have a, have a mindset on what is at stake in eternity, and uh, causes us to make, really make a, maybe need to make a, um, a, a conscious effort to remove any barriers that we have in our personal lives that uh, we may be placing on other people in our personal relationships. Are we building personal relationships with people that don't know Jesus, and how can we help them get to a, to a new place? 
And I guess my last, my last little ditch is just, hey, would you be willing to partner with us in one of the ways to remove barriers with, uh, in which is NYC? Can you help us remove maybe one of the money barriers that would prevent students from coming with us to NYC as a partner with us uh, with those uh, cards? As Pastor Brock gets ready to come and do announcements and offering, um, I just... I thank you so much for being a, a church that loves, for being a, a supportive church of youth ministry and kids ministry. Uh, thanks for supporting me and my family. Uh, I love being the youth pastor here. I tell, I tell Pastor Brock that all the time. I love being on staff here. I love working in Pekin. Uh, me and Ashley are sold out. And uh, I'm so thankful that you love us well and you allow us opportunities to do this, to have conversations like this. Because this is, this is a family conversation. This is a conversation we can have as a family and say, hey, we're all in this together. We're all on the same page. We all have different struggles, but we, we love each other, and we want to love God, and we want to love the people outside the church. So uh, thanks for giving me this opportunity to be with you this morning. Oh, yeah. I ask all of our staff to uh, talk about uh, where they were. So uh, thought-provoking. Uh, so meaningful for us uh, today. Thank you. Uh, let's, let's pray together, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, touching our heart today and causing us to think about who we are and what, it, what it's like in uh, the world around us, Lord. Thank you for sending somebody like Josh here and for all of his sponsors and those that uh, spend so much time with our students, Lord, that have such a heart for them and I know he represents that whole group of refuge leaders, and Lord, would you help us um, not just allow this to be a message that helped us to think about our youth group or be happy that we have a youth pastor, but Lord, help us to think about what we should be doing, changes that we could make, who we need to be. Uh, we love you, and we thank you for speaking to us today through Josh. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much.